you know, James, uh, when I said five minutes and you said two minutes, I didn't realize it was going to be the two together. Marcus <laughs> made it in seven minutes. I'll take it. As long as you it. Are you there, Marcos? Can you hear me fine? Now we can. Okay. So, how's uh, how's everybody's week going? Well, Sarah and I are sick, so. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, it's just kind of a cold, so sucks, but could be far worse. You know, it's called. You know what they say? Us good Catholics just offer it up. Expiation uh-huh. all the way. We should have another uh, podcast in the future about that, about the, the value of suffering. Actually, we did have a request on redemptive suffering. Okay. Ah, that is a good one. Because a lot of people, that, that's completely foreign to their concept of anything, really. Especially, especially people who are caught up in the modern-day prosperity gospel. God made you to have your McMansion. He never wants you to suffer anything ever. <laughs> it's amazing how counter counterintuitive some things are. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I will. Get, when you get into the opposite mindset, a lot of a lot of the church's understandings about how suffering can be redemptive that is counterintuitive. I'll get that, but I, I just like the opposition between historical Christianity's attitudes about suffering and pleasure and a lot of modern, uh, trendy. Christianity's ideas about the same topic. Totally opposites. It's amazing how far we've come from come from the mass to what we have in, in, in modern day Protestant churches. Even some of the so-called um, high church Protestant churches, some of your Presbyterian, some Episcopal and Anglican, even there, I mean, it's still very sanitized compared to what we have in the Catholic Church. Yeah, um, it's quite interesting, the diversity you see. and you, you can always, well, not always. A lot of times you can't. Um, but a lot of the time you can see where a lot of those roots were. I know growing up with, as I mentioned before, my family being split, we would do Easter and Christmas Eve services as a family at my father's side of the family's church, which was... Uh, Disciples of Christ, which has really gone downhill in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, But I remember growing up thinking this doesn't have a lot of structure to it. I don't really know what's going on, except I can get here's the part where we're doing Bible readings and a sermon. And here's the part where there's communion. I kind of recognize that versus like going to college with some friends who are in very traditional Protestant communities like uh, Missouri Synod Lutherans. And visiting with them, and it's like you know, I, I get it. I can follow along. I can tell you you've changed stuff, but I, I see where this is coming from. What about you, Marcos? What are you? Uh, what do you see in all of that? Well, it's just it's very interesting because. Um, if you look at the way history has played out, it seems that there's been over time kind of like a simplification of the of things over over time. Uh, I don't know if, uh, how else to say it. Um, you know, one of the big criticisms against uh, 
the new mass that people make is that it's just it's an oversimplified rite compared to you know the um, what we call the traditional Latin mass, and then of course compared to the Eastern rite masses and you know, with Protestants, you know, a lot of people, that's why a lot of people say, uh, they always like to quote, um, I think it was Archbishop Bunini, who said that we have to do what we can to accommodate our Protestant brothers and sisters. So that's why a lot of people freak out about, you know, the new mass. Um, but, you know, what's interesting is that the, the, the ultimate, though, for me is that regardless if you want to talk about, you know, how mass is uh, performed today, no matter what the right is, you know, a, a Protestant service will never equate to it because it lacks the uh, the pre the true presence of our Lord Jesus Christ through the blood, uh, bread and the wine. So uh, the Eucharist will always be the centerpiece of all Catholic masses. You know, that's the thing. That's the that's the true Christian religion right there. The presence of Jesus Christ right there. And indeed, the true Christian religion in the sense of where are the religious services in which the true ultimate work being done there, that which you're focusing on is what God has done. Uh, you, you go to a lot of communities outside of the historical apostolic churches, and what's the emphasis? The emphasis is on the sermon. It's on the great wisdom and insight and charisma of your preacher. You go to a mass or a divine liturgy, you may have an absolutely horrible homilist who doesn't doesn't even understand what he's reading. But the beauty of the Catholic Mass is we're not relying on the profundities of the priest. We're looking to the Eucharist, which is the cross and the empty tomb. And also the Last Supper. Those are the three that we get in there. And, you know, with that, that's, that's the passion of our Lord. That's the salvation we get from him that we're experiencing. And that's what we're focusing on. I know a lot of people, they look at masses and say, oh, it's so fancy. You've got so many rules and rubrics and da da da. It's so much human works. In some sense, okay, sure, and that we bother to try. But what's the heart of it? The heart of it is, is, is this, this moment of extraordinary grace. Mm -hmm. That's a really beautiful thing. Well, if you take a look, and, and for those of us who are joining us today, it's obvious that we're talking about the liturgy. <laughs> we kind of dived right in, um, or dove right in, I should say. Um, but when we take a look at the word liturgy, like the actual original term comes from a Greek word that meant work for the people. Yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah, obviously, it is a work. <laughs> it's, it's specifically for the people, though. That's the whole point, mm -hmm. is that the Christ, uh, the, the Christ is um, offering himself to us um, in the Mass. Might, you might see that actually as a great illustration of our understanding of how grace works. Is one of the big differences you've seen between classical Reformation understandings of grace and the historical apostolic understanding of grace you see in the Catholic Church is there is a greater emphasis on synergy and cooperation, this understanding of what you are getting at its root foundationally is a gift. You did not earn the thing you're receiving, but you participate in it. You live this life. It's not something that just exists in a vacuum of just grace. There's nothing you do uh, in cooperation with that to live it. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's the liturgy. It is the 
work of and for the people, but what gives it its power? It's not the incense, as much as I love the incense. It's not good hymns written before the 1960s, as much as I love hymns written before the 1960s. It's what God has done. Mm-hmm. It's the cross, the empty tomb, the Last Supper, and the Eucharist. <clears throat> so do you want to dive into the history of the liturgy, or do you want to talk about the scriptural relevance of the liturgy? I mean, we have time for both, guys. That's I mean, it's, it's kind of the same thing because, like, the this, this scriptural basis, you're getting into what's the early history. Getting back even into uh, where we get so much of this stuff, which is the temple Judaism, which Jesus reformed and through the apostles gave us the church. Is, uh, you know, fun fact, ancient Judaism was a liturgical religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, people didn't just gather for uh, Torah study and then sing a couple songs. <laughs> Sang, there was reading and discussion of the Torah. James, there you forgot more... about you forgot about the coffee in the outer court. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I might be a little bit jaded. Um, <laughs> uh, Absolutely. But also one thing that's interesting to find is that when when you're when you're looking at it from a Protestant angle, it's like, well, your traditions aren't found in scripture. But what they fail to see is that the liturgy is while it may not be its form may not be found in scripture precisely, although the mass itself is an illusion of the Apocrypha of John. Um, Apocalypse of John. Apocalypse of John, I'm sorry. The Apocalypse of John. Oh, John. <laughs> sorry. That sounds, yeah. like, that sounds like something would be really awesome, but it'd be something totally different. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long week, guys. Here, here's the to... secret lost diary of St. John. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting I'm getting used to this 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 new schedule of mine, and I'm about to start a two week vacation. So, um, but yeah, it's it's found in the Re- in the book of Revelation or the the Apocalypse of John. Of course, there's there's that, but oddly enough, like when you're taking a look at it, because again, a Protestant typically doesn't look at the book of Revelation as a form of uh, of the Mass, but rather as a book full of prophecies alone. So. And I mean, it's still in that way, like it's still fulfilling the role of prophecy. A lot of people think of prophecy as this narrow thing that's just right. geared toward what are things that are going to happen in the far-flung future. Uh, I, you look at Old Testament prophecy, a lot of it is what's going to happen in the future, but frequently even the same passages will also mean what's something that's happening now. And a lot of it is the symbology of things that people in the know will get so a lot of old testament prophecy if you are really living this culture of the jewish faith and of of identity as an israelite you'll see these signs and you'll get what they mean even though you know like today those of us looking back well you have to know a lot of history you got to know a lot of uh the culture and you got to read a crap ton of books before you would get that stuff and so i get why people like they're looking at at the Apocalypse of St. John or Revelation, and they're thinking, well, prophecy is just far-flung events in the future. So they're reading that, and they're just thinking about the second coming of Christ. 
which is absolutely there. It's you know, it's both and, and that's that's probably the primary thing we should be looking at it for. Um, but also, if you were a Christian of the time, you're looking through this, and you're seeing also your worship. Now, if you don't have that kind of worship, yeah, you're not going to see that. And it's almost its own kind of rabbit hole to dive into how to introduce people into, you know, look at these passages. This is what this is talking about. And your eyes just haven't been open to it because you don't worship like the ancient Christians worshipped. It's also good to note, though, like coming again from an angle that what they don't see is that the, the liturgy is full of scripture. From our prayers to, of course, the Bible readings, which we have a ton of, typically, you know, you're having in a usual, relatively usually evangelical service, you're going to have maybe one Bible reading with a couple pieces of cross-referencing for some exegetical purpose. Um, but typically, you're only going to have a little bit of scripture. And then it's going to be expanded upon. That's going to be the, the primary method of delivery for, for scripture to most Protestants. Whereas they, and, and of course they do typically read their Bible a little bit more than most Catholics do. But when you come to a mass, it's chock full of scripture. You get typically two readings, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. And then of course the gospel reading. And then throughout you have the and words of Christ. The Lots well, of no. people get this. But yeah. Like we have a reading from the Psalms every, uh, you know, Sunday Mass. And, oh yeah, yeah, and, and that's that's something we kind of kind of forget about because it almost feels like we're doing a hymn the way we do it. But like, that's an important part of Scripture that we always have in there. Well, I mean, and that's what I was going to say too is that really and truthfully, we do the Psalms justice because they're they're songs. They're meant to be sung. Or chanted. They're not meant to be just read. That's that's one of the things I think that sometimes we we forget is that they are. You know, David wrote these as worship songs to the Lord, or in honor of what He's done. You know, so it's it's good to, to recognize that. But the the liturgy is full of scripture, mm -hmm. even though it may not be found in scripture. Yeah, and that's and that's great because a lot of it is drawing from the things that prefigure the work of Christ and then the work of Christ through the church, not just in his uh, ministry while he was walking around in the Holy Land. So that can be interesting because a lot of people that aren't really immersed in that will sometimes go to a mass and they'll hear those selections and they're not familiar with them and sometimes don't even recognize them as scripture. And one of my favorite parts is there's a reading from the uh, book of the prophet Malachi that always comes in uh in the course of the eucharistic liturgy which is a reference to how from the i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher this um because i haven't committed it perfectly to memory uh you know bad liturgical podcaster i guess but it goes something along the lines of you know, from the rising of the sun to its setting a pure sacrifice will be offered in my name says the lord and I don't know a lot of Protestants who like go to a mass and they, they hear that and they're like, oh, I know that passage. It's free. It's typically forgotten because a number of reasons. One being that if you understand this as a prophecy, 
well, that's something that has to point ahead to something like the Eucharist, and you can't have that if you're, you know, a Protestant. Um, but another one that's really fun is before we go up to receive communion, there is the prayer of, I believe it was a centurion in the gospel, mm -hmm, right. is, is adopted, say, you know, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. Whereas the actual scripture verse was, uh, my servant shall be healed, or something like that. Um, and I even encountered a situation where somebody was saying that, well, that's unbiblical. I was like, what are you talking about? That's straight out of the Bible. Uh, they, they had something about, well, if you're saved, you are worthy. I was like, ah, you might be worthy of a symbolic snack, but. <laughs> we have to remind ourselves that it's not. And again, this is, this is a, this is a point of, of frustration for me. Um, so I hope this comes across as charitably as possible. But growing up Protestant, I would hear stuff like that, and it it, it skirted on this this the situation where it almost seemed to me that I became worthy by my own merit, as opposed to Christ making me worthy through His merit. Does that make sense? Like. I did I did enough good works that week or I did I didn't sin so I'm worthy now of it. Mm -hmm. I mean yes Christ through his merit makes us, you know, sons and daughters of God. But we are never worthy of his sacrifice. You know, the Bible tells us specifically that um we who are living, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, that we haven't given up our lives and our struggle with sin. So we are going to struggle with that from the moment that we're born until the day that we die. And it's only through Christ's redemptive work that we can do anything good. Um, we ourselves are, you know, we, we, we merit to be co-heirs again through Christ's merits. Um, and, and, and I'm not getting into the whole total depravity issue there, but it just goes to prove that Catholics, we don't believe that our good works get us to heaven, but rather, you know, we do the good works because we're supposed to. That's part of the whole thing. All right, back to the topic. Um, so the scripture, you've got the Jewish worship. It's temple worship, it's sacrificial worship, accordingly it's liturgical worship. So then you move into the age of the church. And this is where a lot of people will say, well, Jesus said that you would worship the Father in spirit and truth. So you don't need a liturgy anymore, because that's not spirit and truth. Have you guys ever heard that one before? I, I've heard something like that. Um, it was Not very, quite exactly, it, it was very, very obscure to me. And I don't know, for me, like, it doesn't make sense because the idea, I don't know, like, it, it almost feels like it's not Trinitarian. And uh, on the second, you know, it just reminds me of uh, in Hebrews 12, okay, whenever St. Paul's contrasting between, you know, the Mosaic and the, the New Covenant. Uh, in the last few verses, starting on, on uh, verse 21, it says, Indeed, so fearful was the spectacle that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. 
And now we have the transition. No, you have approached Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the countless angels in festal gathering, and the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. And God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the just made perfect, and Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. See that you do not reject the one who speaks, for if they do not escape when they refuse the one who warned them on earth, how much in our case, how much more in our case if we turn away from the one who warns from heaven? His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, I will once more shake not only earth, but heaven. The phrase once more points to the removal of shaken created things so that what is unshaken may remain. Therefore, we who are receiving the unshakable kingdom should have gratitude with which we should offer worship, pleasing to God in reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So that to me, like, I don't know, to me that that just, in a way, proves that the liturgy is not just, you know, all prayer and honor to the Father, you know, that if that was true, then we wouldn't necessarily be Trinitarian, to be to be quite honest, in my, in my way of thinking. It's an interesting angle. I haven't thought of it that way. I, usually when I hear that objection, I have to admit, my mind doesn't lead to a Trinitarian issue that might come up from that way of thinking. Uh, usually I just think, you know, what's the context of that? What's Jesus talking about? And he's talking about a dispute between Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritans were, there was, there was a Samaritan he was talking with, and they were saying that, you know, you Jews, you worship at the temple in Jerusalem. We worship at our mountain, which is correct. And Jesus right. is kind of saying, you know, when I am done with these things, that's not going to matter. It's not going to be the temple in Jerusalem. It's not going to be this mountain. It's going to be everywhere. Whereas Malachi says, from the rising of the sun to the setting, because it's not going to be, I've got one place that I am pegged down to. No, where, what worship is going to consist of is... Okay, spirit and truth. Right. What is of spirit? What is of truth? Is that a direction on how you're to worship in terms of is it liturgical or not? I don't think so. It seems to be much more about a question of faith, and faith implies you know, obedience, obedience, things like that. Uh, it, it seems to be addressing a completely different question. And moreover, Oh, we, we see some of the descriptions of Christian worship in the epistles and, and acts. Uh, it seems to be an orderly thing. Like it has an actual leader. It's got stages and steps. Um, and certainly when you're talking about the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, um, that, that is something treated with very carefully. This isn't something that just kind of happens when we're, when we're done feeling like we're done with whatever stage we were at. Um, but rather, there is a structure here. Um, and you even see evidence, some say, in Paul's writing of formulas that would have been used as part of liturgy. Because an important part of liturgy is that we as a community have elements of our worship that are shared and universal, or at least semi-universal within a particular church. And one example of this, um, some biblical scholars have said, so you look in Corinthians 11, when he's when Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper, um, he seems to be giving kind of a liturgical formula for the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, when in verse 23, 
he is giving this this formula of the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in, in remembrance of me in the same way after supper so on and so forth and those of us who are part of liturgical faiths like we recognize that because that is the formula um you know translated maybe a little differently mm -hmm. that we use to this day but again, that's something where if you're not within a community and culture that's using liturgical formulas, um, you're not going to pick that up from the scripture when you see it, because to you, it's just another verse. So what about the importance of language in liturgy? Because I know that there's a lot of um, contention within certain subgroups of, of Catholics right now about the language, say, for example, Latin, liturgical Latin, which is different from the Latin that was spoken, from my understanding. Um, um, yeah, it depends what time period you're talking about. Ecclesiastical Latin did come out of a Latin that was spoken, but that's because that was the Latin spoken at the time that that kind of got to be the language used in worship. Um, but yeah, the importance of language in liturgy is kind of a tricky topic. Because um, on the one hand, there are advantages to using a universal language. And that's why for the longest time, even after Latin ceased to be the common language of the West, uh, we, we continue to use it in Western liturgies. And you know, many reasons exist for that. Things like the meaning of the words doesn't change, especially once it's a dead language. Um, and that people aren't using it every day. Well, the meaning of the words is set. You don't have to worry about a generation is going to pass and some of the words are going to mean something else. Um, anywhere you go that's you know, within Western Christendom, you're going to know what the worship is like. You're going to be able to follow along. Um, also, things like if you have a community, especially when it's pastors that are familiar with that language, that also means that they have access to a lot of ancient resources because they can read the language of those resources, whether it's Latin in the West or Greek in the East, uh, mainly. And there are all kinds of other advantages. On the other hand, um, you know, issues of how well are people going to be able to follow along with it. But when you listen to all these issues, they're practical questions. There isn't like an intrinsic matter of a liturgy has to be in a certain language in order to be valid for it to count. So we don't want to be like the super new mass enthusiasts where it's like the Latin mass is bad because it's in Latin. Nor do we want to be like the rad trads or like the new mass is bad because it's not in Latin. Doing it in a universal, maybe even dead language has advantages. Doing it in the language of the people has its advantages. It's a pragmatic choice, and we've shifted heavily in favor of the language of the people. Okay. Uh, that, that, that's not the kind of essential question a lot of people make it out to be. It's important to note that also a lot of the same issues, isn't necessarily with the language, but also with the changing of certain terms. Right. Um, with the new mass. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, um, in the 1960s, a ecumenical council known as Vatican II, a second Vatican council, um, created within its its time a new order of the mass, or the Novos Ordo, 
which is is what most would call it, or NO for short. So you you find within that particular council there is some good, some not so good. Um, for those of us in the East, it freed us up to kind of worship a little bit better, I guess, and more traditionally for us. Whereas in the, the Western church, it kind of had a, a blowback that wasn't, I don't know if it was necessarily expected. Some might say that it was engineered. Um, but that's not that, we're not that type of podcast. Um, <laughs> we may do a couple of conspiracy theories. YouTube channels and you name it out there. If you want your bit about how the Freemasons hijacked a council with the false pope and uh, you know, whatever other kind of nonsense you want to push out there, because you're definitely doing God's work and dividing the church, because that's definitely the will of heaven and not of anybody else who might be opposed. Uh, anyway, not that I have any thoughts about those people. Well, I, I think what's interesting, though, is that a lot of people don't know that a lot of the terms we use come from, you know, our Greek heritage. You know, like Eucharist basically is a you can argue it's a term for gift or giving, giving thanks, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then also you have uh, you just all sorts of things like you know like the uh, the the just the the, the three main I just, the, the the mass we know today right has three three main parts right we have the uh, well actually four we have the introductory rites we have the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist and then we have the concluding rites but. What's funny to me is that when I was researching this, and of course, when I went to a silent retreat a couple of weeks back, I uh, I learned about the, just like the origins and the history of the liturgy. And believe it or not, a lot of people have this idea, and it's been very popular, especially with these more modernist uh, contemporary liturgists who think that the original liturgy was some kind of a Thanksgiving dinner party amongst the first believers of, of, of Christ. Like, there was just some kind of fraternal gathering and me- memorial of the Lord and that kind of thing. But what's crazy is that when you read the earliest liturgical texts, these are very heavy on theology. They acknowledge the, you know, the almost ubiquitous presence of the angels. And uh, one of the fun stories I like to read is, uh, or, or like to relate, is that, uh, so one of the great church, uh, church father, St. Basil, uh, did a reform of the liturgy for his area. And one of his one of his main points was that the original liturgy that, that preceded him would, on average, take about four hours to accomplish. <laughs> and, and then he basically said, because we are weak men, not like our forefathers, we have to reduce some things to two and a half, two and a half hours. And it's kind of interesting to contrast the amount of time they, they gave for, you know, for worship. And then like, you see over time, like the whittling down of the liturgy to what it is now, like you go to a traditional Latin mass, sometimes it's an hour and a half to two hours. And typically the, the new rite is, or the, 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 the ordinary form is uh, at, at, on average about an hour itself. But it's so interesting to see how that whittling down of the time of worship developed. Yeah. And it's interesting what kinds of weird places that comes from. I mean, I know going into the present day, so much of that is a lot of things that were historically sung are just said. Right. And I've noticed this, um, if if you look at liturgical texts between different rites, 
sometimes they're not that different in like written length. Mm -hmm. but you'll notice a massive difference when you go because most masses in the Latin rite, um, most of it they just say. And sometimes you'll have things that everybody sings, but they'll still just say because maybe they don't have a can for and right. isn't a good singer or whatever. But then you go to another rite um, where, where they ask everything, yeah. everything. Yeah. And it's like, this is beautiful. And it's also going to take forever. Right. And you know, the, thing, the irony that I found out too is that because a lot of people say, oh, Council of Trent, you know, literally the church was reborn in the Council of Trent, at least that's how some people perceive it. And uh, the, what's funny is that the, what in the traditional land right, okay, you have two forms of the mass typically. You have the high mass and the low mass. And the high mass is the, the typical Misa Cantata where you have the mass parts sung. And believe it or not, the history of the church has focused on singing. The liturgy has traditionally been sung up until the Council of Trent, which then allowed for the low mass, which was it, then it, a, became what's may, called a spoken mass. If I recall correctly, that it's sung, that's something that has its roots back in Jewish worship. Mm -hmm. A lot of that would still be sung. Right. And when we're talking about singing, we should note we're not talking about your modern praise and worship right, exactly. kind of singing. Now, we're, we're talking very reverent, deep and solemn singing, joyful singing, um, but not flippant singing, I guess I would say. Right. You know, that, that's the thing I, I think a lot of, uh, and, you know, especially here in our in the contemporary church a lot, because, you know, there's a lot of elements that go into the liturgy, and you can have a priest who's very devout, very reverent, you know, you have the smells and bells, so they say, but if the music it's not on par with it, you know, it loses a lot of its, the, the, the nuance is pretty much lost if the music is not matching. Um, so like here in the Catholic church, we have some Catholic uh, liturgical music composers who uh, a lot of people have um, felt had a lot of mixed feelings for. Um, so you have people like Marty Hagen, David Haas, and a few others. And um, oh, my feelings about them are not mixed at all. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so, like, there, there's some kinds of, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of interesting uh, things that go in because the Holy Mass is, is meant to be a, a moment of Kairos, and I think we talked about this Kronos versus Kairos. Kairos is kind of like a, a entering into the divine eternity of the Lord, and so the music is supposed to be not otherworldly, like you're not gonna have like New Age ambience playing in the background kind of thing, but it's supposed <laughs> to be. You know, something that, that elevates the mind you to heaven kind of thing to to praise and adore the Lord. And um, it was uh, the composer's name is Dan Schutt, or I think that's how you say Schutt or Shut. But the thing is, he wrote a mass. Um, and the unfortunate thing is that the Gloria, so that's one of the hymns that we sing. And a lot of the hymns that we use in mass, of course, are texts from the Bible. And so the glory to God in the highest and peace to people on earth. You know, we sing that in praise of the Lord. And unfortunately, the setting is almost identical to, or at least it has the same same pattern as to the the theme song to My Little Pony. And a lot of oh, people, a lot of people just find it like a farce. Like, why are we singing this, you know, in, in adoration of the Lord when you have so much references to the, you know, the, the world. And so a lot of people 
uh, get irked by that. And, you know, it's, it's weird how, how much things have changed because in the church also, I, I mean, I don't mean to dive deep, too deep into the to the issue of liturgical music, but, you know, um, there's been a shift since Vatican II. And, you know, like we said, we've been saying this a, long, a lot of times uh, that, you know, the Vatican II didn't do all these things by his proclamations is it's been the implementation of so many people that have abused the words of Vatican II or twisted them for their own purposes that you have a lot of these hymns that instead of giving glory to God, they end up being like calls for social justice or giving ourselves a pat on the back because we believe in the Lord and trust in his mercy and you know we're we're doing good things, blah blah blah, rather than you know affording the glory that, that God truly deserves. So, it's it's funny it's a lot of there's a lot of music in the past 50 years is is written to be performance pieces, not to, you know, set the ambiance of the, the atmosphere of liturgy, but as something for the, the choir and the cantor to, to show off how talent they are. And, you know, again, they, they, the mass is not meant to be a performance for everybody to watch. Um, you know, we we are not meant to be anything like those rock concert right uh, <laughs> even the rock concert stuff at least like you can jump up and down and wave your hands or something at least you know have something more than just watching somebody show off but still. right i do have to say this though what what i find really funny is that the complaints that i hear about music in um in, in in the Catholic Church, as opposed to the stuff that we would hear in the Protestant Church or sing. Um, there's a line in one song that we would, um, that, that we sang almost every single week in the church that I, I went to, and it goes something to the effect of, and heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, yeah. and my heart beats violently inside of my chest. And it, it's like, a lot of the music that they play in, in, the, in the Protestant church is really, I could replace with a girl's name, the name of Jesus, and it sound just as good and be just as popular. <laughs> I'll probably make more sense. Yeah, it's, and actually, there's, a, uh, there's an entire, um, I won't go into the, which it's church okay. it was, but there is a, there's an entire, like, series of, of worship albums that came out they were based off of beatles songs <laughs> um and not like the music itself so it was very right. catchy it had a lot of really great hooks because now mind you guys i'm i'm a big fan of the beatles so i liked it a lot but <laughs> again like marcus you had talked about it you know that it's not meant to be like a theremin from right. star trek or anything like that <laughs> but you know here like in our in, in talking about from the maronite church we do a lot of chanting, so most of the mass is chanted, um, and a lot of singing. There's a lot of extra hymns and, and things like that. Um, and the, the the music is very solemn, is the best word that I've heard. So, Eddie, uh, at the Maronite, do you all sing the Cherubic hymn or something similar? Oh, I am not familiar. So... It's usually like considered like I think in the Byzantine rite and the liturgy of Saint James they use it like a uh, like an offertory. It's it, basically in English it would be the the hymn of "Little Mortal Flesh Keep Silence" and 
with fear and trembling stand kind of thing no that is not that's okay that's, there's a part in our in the mass where the the gospel is about to be read okay and the the deacon or subdeacon or con celebrant may say something to the effect of stand silent the listener while okay. the the gospel is is and i'm butchering this obviously <laughs> <laughs> um but but that's about the closest that we have um and again now mind mind everybody listening i'm i'm part of what's called the western syriac right the antiochian tradition um so while yes we're an eastern church we are the most latinized of all the eastern churches so we're very similar to like if you walk into a Maronite liturgy, you're not going to be very lost. The liturgical language, you're more than likely not going to to follow. But at the same time, um, you'll be able to follow the basic ideas of the Mass. Of course, we have the anaphora, um, depending upon which one we do that day, whether it's the anaphora of uh, Pope St. Sixtus or the Twelve Apostles, uh, any number of different anaphoras that we pray as well, leading up towards the Eucharist. But that's, obviously, we haven't gotten that far, but um, we're a little bit different. But hopefully, um, we're hoping to have Abuna Peter, uh, the priest from my church, come over and, and uh, help us out with a, a podcast on um, a little bit of the differences between the Latin and Maronite liturgies. So hope that will come up here pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah, that, that'd be great. I mean, as, as someone who is a Roman Catholic, but who spent a a year plus frequently attending a Eastern Catholic church, Eastern liturgies are just awesome. And so much of it is that they, they've kept so much of that antiquity instead of casting it off, like a lot of Western uh, churches have. Especially the things like they sing everything usually. And it's awesome. I'm a big fan. Uh, you know, I bring a lot of my my friends whenever they come into town and they're there on the on the weekend. I make sure that they come to mass with me because I want them to experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, we while we're I think the third or fourth largest of the Eastern churches, um, there's still not a lot of us <laughs> here in the states. In fact, I live in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm part of the eparchy of Los Angeles, which our seat is in St. Louis. So that kind of tells you about, um, but that, again, that's a little bit, it's about Episcopacy, less about liturgy, but um, it is an, it's interesting to bring my friends in and let them kind of experience a little bit of, of a different flavor of the mass, I guess is the best way to put it. Um they're a little bit more tabouli into it than, I don't know, cannoli. I don't know. I was going to make a joke about Roman versus Lebanese, but it oh. doesn't make as much sense. <laughs> the uh, I think though between between all the liturgies, I think the the, the main because a lot of people you know like we, we earlier we were talking about language and the words to be said, and I think really the the true constant between all of them you know is is with the 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 kind of what we would call the words of consecration in the eucharistic prayer and and for in the eastern rite we would have the anaphora yes it's a much longer prayer 
Um, we like say, for example, today we did the anaphora of the twelve apostles. Um, and it, it's it's I, I don't know that I think that was the hardest thing. Like whenever I did, because I, originally, like to kind of give my 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 backstory with that. Um, when I converted, I wanted to convert as a Maronite, but I lived in an area that was staunchly Roman only, so I couldn't do so. So I originally came into church as a Roman Catholic and then became, or I'm in the process of switching rights is really the best way to put it. As they like to say, they're marinating me. And um, I love my Maronite church. I love, I love everything about it. But we definitely, we're, it is, it's a little bit different because when you, you get very used to um, certain things, and I guess we could maybe talk a little bit about this too. Like there's certain gestures and poses that are taken during liturgy that have great significance. Okay. Yeah. I think we should talk about that. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> this is, this is one that's kind of different. We don't really bow in the Maronite church. I'm sorry. We don't kneel in the Maronite church. We bow um, more often. So you will find some genuflecting here and there. Um, those that are more Latinized. But typically, we're not kneelers. Um, in the Melkite church, you stand the entire time, except for during the homily. So those are two instances of uh, some Eastern churches that are a little bit different as far as liturgical poses are concerned. Also, during the Our Father, we do take the, the pose where we raise our hands, which is a little bit different, too, as far as the rubrics are concerned with the... Um, of the Roman church, just something, a couple differences. And if you guys want to talk about that I mean, specifically. That, that last one's kind of interesting because a lot of people do that in the West and they're not really supposed to. In the West, that's that posture is supposed to only be for the the minister, the, the, uh, the, the priest of the mass um, during the actual mass, outside of mass, whatever. And there are different historical reasons for that. Custom and culture, it's an interesting thing. I think posture is an interesting point because I know a lot of Protestants when they think of Catholic worship, they think of it as kind of like gymnastics because there's the standing and the sitting and the kneeling and the standing and the <laughs> sitting. But like you said, it has a purpose. And if you go through the Mass looking at what are we doing right now, the posture makes a lot of sense. So the, the sitting, that is the position of a student who is sitting to learn so for most of the scripture readings that's what you're doing and for the the homily that is what you're doing the homily being a short sermon for those who aren't familiar with the phrase you'd be surprised how many people out there never heard the word homily um, right so you also hom homily is a short sermon um at least ideally a short sermon Priests <laughs> <laughs> don't understand that um and some understand that perhaps too well um but standing is kind of the default posture. And you see that definitely in the East, that's something that's kind of universal, standing as the default. Uh, but then kneeling is for these moments of most profound worship, uh, which, which in the ordinary form centers around uh, the Eucharist itself. Because of course we believe the Eucharist is truly Christ himself, that he, you know, he wasn't kind of teasing us when he talked about this, he really meant it and accordingly, when we're getting into the consecration, we are kneeling. And for a lot of the rest of the liturgy of the Eucharist, we are kneeling. There are parts where we stand for different reasons, one being to receive communion, usually, um, if, if you're not 
in a situation where they're going around. Because they, they did this during COVID in our parish, um, where we were skipping other every other pew and they didn't want people lining up. So they went through the empty pews, giving them to people and so you could just stay kneeling. But normally if it's just given up front, you have to stand up at some point. Um, but that light kind of makes sense. You sit to listen and to learn. You stand as a default or in salutation as is the case for the gospel and hallelujah. Right. And you kneel for just the most profound worship when you are facing Christ in the Eucharist. As I said before, Christ in the Last Supper, Christ in the crucifixion, Christ in the resurrection. Um, mm -hmm. So that is set apart in the Western liturgy by kneeling. The interesting thing is we've, in a lot of churches, reintroduced some element of bowing. We don't bow nearly as much as Eastern Catholics do, um, but frequently um, what they recommend is that, for example, during the creed, when we're talking about the incarnation, that there be some sort of bow. Right. Um, and, and, of course, some people incorporate it on their own as part of when they're receiving communion. That's the sign of reverence they prefer to give before receiving. Um, some people bow at the mention of the of the Lord's name when we're singing the Gloria, things like that. But uh, I know people get caught up on that though because it's gymnastics. It must be so hard on your body. But my grandmother on my father's side always told me that you know if, if I became Catholic, I'd have to kneel, and I can't kneel. That grandma. If you can't if you can't kneel, you don't have to kneel. Fun fact: those postures are to be assumed insofar as you are actually physically capable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You go to a Catholic mass, you're going to notice that frequently there are some pews up front where the um, you know, more disabled or handicapped folks tend to sit because it's easier for the priest to just go up and give them communion without have them having to walk up. And you'll notice a lot of them. Uh, they'll be sitting the entire time, or they'll sit and stand as much as they can, but it may be the whole, maybe all the normal standing parts may not be. Um, but you almost never see them kneel. Nobody throws a fit about it. Why? You know, again, it's, it's about, the posture is about reverence, and right. reverence is something of the heart. And so I would always tell my grandmother, and she would never internalize or remember, and always bring this up next time I talk to her about these things is that if you're kneeling in your heart, that's what matters. You know, in your heart, you are adoring the Lord Jesus. That is what matters. Now, if you are able to kneel and you're kneeling in your heart, well, what are you going to do? You're going to kneel physically. If you're able to kneel physically and you don't, you're not kneeling in your heart. But if you can't kneel physically, but you're kneeling in your heart in adoration of the Lord, Yes. All right. You've done it. You're good. You know, there are some people out there, though, that will be like the kneeling police or they'll try to make an act like a scene out of it, especially like, you know, during the the procession for the Eucharist, when people go go in, usually for us Catholics, we've been instructed mostly to do an honorary bow. And then, you know, you receive the body of Christ and and, um, you know, do that. And some people will. Make make an effort to get on both knees and you know receive the Lord on the tongue and of course that's that's a whole other can of worms for in the Catholic Church right now. Like should you receive in the hand or on the tongue only, and should you use tinction, whatever. But uh, yeah, it's uh 
it's it's a very interesting dilemma because sometimes people just want to use their personal experience as the universal, you know, what do you call it, the ruler to to see who's devout and who isn't, and, and that that just becomes like a you become a Pharisee at that point anyway. Yeah, a pro tip, and this is one advantage of having the liturgy. Um, you should never make yourself the rule for others. That that is. A bad thing to do. And one advantage of the liturgy is at least on paper, we have a rule of what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And so if they're doing what the rubrics say, and it's not that crazy or complicated, or at least they're trying to, then okay, that's what matters. You don't get to go in and say, well, your manner of showing reverence to our Lord in the Eucharist before you receive, just it doesn't do it for me. Well, okay, then you do something else. <laughs> well, I, it's... Case, like I have times where I'm I'm moved to do something much greater. But God help me if I'm ever ever in a situation where I, you know, especially if I see some older lady, I'm like, why aren't you doing this crazy thing that I feel like doing in this moment? No, that's that's crazy. <laughs> well, Jesus, Jesus actually gave a parable about that once, and it was the parable of the. I think it was the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee specifically. Oh, like the yeah. um, man goes up and he's through the Pharisee and he starts to, to pray and he's praying to God of all the great things he does. And I am not like this man over here who's a tax collector and a sinner. And then the, the tax collector comes up and he beats his chest before God and calls out that he's a sinner and that he's not worthy to, to approach, basically. And Jesus says, which of these do you think that God accepts as sacrifice? Mm-hmm. And it was definitely the sinner above the one that sat there. So it is, it's important to not take that pharisaical mindset where, and I mean, I know personally, I'm not going to lie, um, it, can, it can really hit you sometimes, where it's like, well, why are they doing that? Why don't they do this? And then I'm reminded, well, why don't I pay more attention to my relationship with Christ yes. than theirs? Because if I'm not helping them, if I'm not helping another person along the road to heaven, and I'm trying to hinder them on that road, am I really doing any good there? You know? Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a beautiful thing when people kneel before the, the Eucharist. I personally don't do so. Um, I have a hard time getting back up because I have bad knees. Um, but I also solely prefer to receive on the tongue. Um, for me, it's a practical issue. I usually pet my dogs before I leave and I don't get a chance to wash my hands. So I'd prefer to not receive the Lord, you know, with hands that have pet my dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just personal. Um, and then with the Maronites, you have tinction, correct? You do. You can request it in the hand. It's very rare, but during COVID, you found it. But with intinction, of course, you receive both species or the body and the blood of our Lord together. So you get the dip into the cup, which is not a, a Roman practice at all. That's purely in the East. And it's, and it's not universal either, um, because in some Maronite churches, um, you will have leavened or unleavened bread, too. So in the Roman church, it's very traditional for us or for you all to use um, an unleavened bread. That's what I grew up knowing about in the Protestant church, too. Um, 
which represents that Christ had no sin in it whatsoever. Um, the breaking, of course, of the bread represents um, his body being broken. Mm-hmm. Um, there's several, there's a lot of, a lot of illusion there and a lot of allegory there um, to what, what scripture says. Do, do you want to um, transition to focus on how the, because a lot of people right now, they, they have the idea, and especially with Catholics nowadays, even some of my, my, you know, the younger, the younger generations, they, they see the, the mass as more of a Thanksgiving rather than a, uh, a, a sacrificial, a paschal sacrifice. Oh, do you want, you want to transition to that? Oh yeah. That's so important to understand that we're not just, we're not celebrating a memorial. We're calling back into memory what happened. Or rather, what I would say is we are doing a memorial in the way Jewish culture understood a memorial in the context that Jesus did the Last Supper, which was a Seder meal, right. Passover meal. Because um, for them, the Passover Seder was a memorial, but it was a memorial that kind of broke down time and made them very much present at the Passover. They spoke of the events as not just something that happened in the past to somebody else, but something that the Lord was doing for them, doing for them in that moment. And so when Jesus at the Last Supper is inaugurating the Eucharist as the new Passover, and he says, do this in memory of me, he doesn't mean this modern sense of, oh, we're going to think back and think, oh, wasn't that great that Jesus did that swell thing for us? No, it's it's something where th- this meal we have is a real experience of that time for us, which means consequently a memorial of a sacrifice is a sacrifice. It's a real experience of that. It's a real presence of the one who was sacrificed. This is an instance where the semantics really does matter. Um, in certain certain branches of Protestant Christianity, and and even into the um, the more cultish type, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they do a memorial service every year. Um, of course, they're non-Trinitarian. Um, anti-Nicene, they're not what we would consider a Christian religion to begin with. But they basically just have this this time where they almost have like a 9-11 type memorial where, you know, you basically put something up on your Facebook wall and and you, you, you do this in memory, you know, of someone as opposed to actually having that active sacrifice. And I think that is important to understand. Um, that the memorial, like what we would consider a memorial today, is not what James is talking about there. Um, it's more than just posting something or reposting something on Facebook. You know, it's it's definitely, uh, we're, we're taking part in, I think the way that I, it was best explained to me when I, I was converting, and I always loved this because it reminds me that I can share this with my future in-laws anytime that I go to mass, but it's the point where heaven and earth meet that moment of consecration that mm-hmm. the mass is. And I share in the same table that my future in-laws uh, do. 
that my, my mom did and those that have gone on before me. So I can at that same moment share with that with them together. And it makes things like the death of a loved one a little bit of a softer blow, if that makes sense. Not only do we believe that, that, that God is the God of the living, um, but we also believe that at the same time we join together at the Lord's table all at one moment. And that's just beautiful to me. No, I, 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 I agree with the sentiment. And, you know, the, a, a lot of times people, you know, they, they, they don't see that extra dimension. You know, like there, sometimes you might see, uh, you know, there's a couple of Facebook posts you see every now and then or even a couple of YouTube videos where they say, you know, if you could, if you, if your eyes could see what's really happening in the mass, you know, you see like that there's a, there's really like this, this culmination of uh, angelic and, and human worship of the Lord during the mass, you know, um, when we begin in the mass, you know, we say, sing the Gloria. And of course that's kind of like the, so in the, in the Catholic religion, well, in, in Christianity in general, we believe there's, you know, nine choirs of angels. And so you begin with the lowest choir, which are just your your angels. Typically, you could call it maybe your guardian angels. Uh, those are a part of a you know the basically the hierarchies of the angels. Uh, as you go higher and higher, you know they, they become more and more attuned to either the works of nature or even just the pure adoration of the Lord, like the seraphim. But um, so the angels cry out when the, the Lord is born in the nativity. You know you have the glory glory to God in the highest and peace with people on earth and as the math progresses, it's like as the math progresses, it's like you get to higher and higher and higher heights, and then finally you have the culmination of the angels singing the the holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. You know, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. And then from there, we're all united with the you know that's why when in, during the mass we say lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. We're just all in in glorious adoration of the Lord God who has become, you know the the his body has become the bread and his blood has become the wine and or more like the vice versa, right? The bread has become the body and the wine has become the blood. And, and it's just, I don't know, like for me, there's, it's, it's, that's like such a rupture in reality that it's so hard to, to really try to even rationalize what's occurring. We could explain what's happening. We could say what's happening, but it's just like the experience and all the times people don't have their hearts in the right place during masses. So they just like, eh, just uh, some guy, some wine and some bread, you know, doing some, saying some funny words and you just go jack chick on it, you know, and, and whatever. <laughs> but, uh, oh, you mean the hocus pocus? Oh, of course. Clearly. And then we turn ourselves around and that's what it's all about. <laughs> oh man. And you know, what's funny though, is that a lot of times uh, I've heard a lot of Protestants say that every time we consecrate the body and blood of Jesus Christ, they say that you're re-crucifying the Lord. What do y'all say about that? Okay, well, I'd say go right back to what I was explaining about what memorial means in that context. It's one and the same. You can't re-crucify the Lord in a memorial of the Lord's crucifixion if it is a new Passover. You can only have the experience of the one and the same sacrifice, only now you are participating in it. So, no. No, it's 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 one sacrifice. Uh, I might also point back to that that verse we used from Malachi, 
Now from the uh, rising of the sun to the setting, a, a uh, pure sacrifice is offered to my name, says the Lord. Pure sacrifice, singular. Uh, how is that possible? You have to have something that breaks down time and space to be singular and yet universal. And well, that's how that works. It's a sacrifice that is everywhere in every time the church is, but is one with the Lord. And that is why we put so much emphasis on it. It's not because, oh, we've got another sacrifice we got to do, but no, this is our way of getting into the one sacrifice. There are other ways of experiencing it, but this is just right direct at the heart of it. We are going to the Last Supper. We are going to the cross. We are going to the empty tomb. And we are, as, uh, as, as everything, I'm, I'm getting kind of uh, all over the place here. <laughs> but, well, but, but yeah, it, it, it's one. It's one, period. It's also not good to understand that this is a bloodless sacrifice, is what we term it as. Yes. Um, and it's understood that this is just, you know, again, this is calling into memory, calling back into existence that which happened before. And and there's and there again, that's that's where we talk about the mysteries of the faith. Um another point I think needs to be brought up, because there's a lot of confusion on this with the liturgy. Who is it that makes it present? Is it the priest with fancy words? Is it the congregation with you know just all the energy in our hearts wishing for it to happen? No. If you look at the texts, the words actually said in the worship, in the liturgy of the Eucharist, whether it's Roman or Byzantine or whatever else, it's always God. Specifically, it's the Holy Spirit who comes down and makes the pitiful offerings we have into the sacrifice of Christ. Right. So, you know, we don't want to be like the Jack Chick comic where there's a, a, a hooded figure who has lightning coming out of his hands and that's how transubstantiation happens. No, <laughs> no, this is what God does. Funny enough, funny enough. So in the Roman church, during the words of consecration, there's typically a bell that's ringing at a certain point. Right. Yeah. In the, in the Marriott Church, we have that as well, but there's a point where the priest takes and flutters his hands around the offerings three times. Hmm. And what that is, is that's the moment where, where we believe the Holy Spirit comes down and, and does that specifically. So in, in the manner of like the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, he would flutter his hands like wings. Oh. And it's actually, yeah, it's a very interesting separate thing from the the Roman liturgy. So you see, you can see something, I know this is going to sound, I don't want this to sound like literal, figuratively see, you can see something happening at that moment. Um, whereas in the Roman, the Roman rite, you don't see that same thing. So um, for a person who walks in, in my opinion, a person who's not you know familiar with transubstantiation, um, it's a little bit easier to explain it to them. Well, that's the point. You remember that point where the guy fluttered his hands around the cup and everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the point where the Holy Spirit descends. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a point of reference, I guess, during the liturgy um, to, to, to better understand it. Um, just a little little side note. No, that, that's neat. And, I mean, that kind of harkens to another 
good general point about liturgical worship is it engages the senses so we can kind of perceive that which is itself imperceivable. Like you said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the gifts, you don't see the Holy Spirit generally. It's a very extraordinary thing, even in Scripture, for the Holy Spirit to manifest in an actual visible way. But with the way the worship is done in the Maronite rite, you have a visible sign of that so that you experience it with the senses we have. Likewise, in the Roman rite, the use of a bell or something similar kind of calling to mind that there is a reality here I cannot perceive, but here is a sign to bring it into me, into my experience, which otherwise I would not have. And that's true of other parts too. And you know, even the postures. Postures are a way of, with our senses, experiencing kind of the imperceivable of like when the scriptures are being read. Yeah, it's the priest who's reading the scriptures, but in another way, it is God speaking to our hearts through the scriptures. Well, are you audibly hearing the Lord speak to you? Probably not. You might, but probably not. But with your posture and the way the structure of the worship is at that moment, you do have these signs that you can perceive so that you have some sort of experience of that which is otherwise inexperienceable, if that's a word. You know, that's. I think that's why one thing that a lot of people like about the traditional Latin mass, because you do have a lot of movement and mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, um, I guess you could say, engagement of just watching the priest do his work during the mass. And, you know, like everything you see, is it has an intention, it's precise description, you know, what's happening. Well, and not necessarily you know what's happening consciously unless you know how to read the, the parts of the Mass or reading the translations as the priest is going along with it. But, you know, of course, with us in the, the new Mass, what's interesting is that we're called to a, I guess what, one of the big things about Vatican II was the active participation of the faithful. And so we have this. That's why there's a lot more like call and response in the new right compared to the, the old right too. Do you guys want to kind of get into that, like the differences between uh, pre-Vatican II and you wanna, Vatican? You, I mean, do that or do you, oh, go ahead. Please. Honestly, I think that's something we should handle in another episode. I think so too. Because that's uh, getting into yeah. the whole, you know, what happened with Vatican II, what went well, yeah, that would, what and, then, and, and also what actually changed, what people changed on their own apart from the council. Exactly. That's a own episode. Yeah. Uh, well, do y'all want to just go through the, the mass parts then uh, in the in the new rite? Sure. Sure. Okay, yeah. so, so like I said, we have like pretty much four parts. We have what's called the uh, introductory rite. So it's typically where you have the entrance hymn. And then you have the priest walking in procession. And then the priest goes to the altar, kisses the altar, goes to the chair and stands facing the people. And of course, we always begin with the sign of the cross. And that's how, as Catholics for us, we, that's how we see, that's how we open and close our prayers. We use the sign of the cross. And some people, like, it's always funny to joke, because I remember when I was a little kid, it was at some point where, like, you know, like, if you forgot to do the second side of the cross at the end of your prayer, it's like you left the, the telephone on, you know, because <laughs> it was something interesting, though. But that, that's always something that, that always came to mind when I was little. I think the operator knows how that works. I right. 
Now, it's not like when you're coding a computer and you, you forget the close parentheses and the entire thing runs in an you know, endless loop and you know, burns itself out. You know, God's not like that. Right. And so, of course, for us, the priest is the primary, the primary celebrant. You know, of course, you can have other priests and maybe or whoever has the most authority will be leading the mass. So if the bishop is present, typically the, the bishop will lead the mass. Um, course we have uh several greetings sometimes the priest can say the grace of our lord jesus christ and the love of god and the communion of the holy spirit will be with you all and for us with the you know, of course with the new text that we got from 2010 what that mean the more accurate translation we say and with your spirit do y'all know why we say with your spirit i mean like, i know that that's what the latin actually said but right I, I don't know beyond that that was my understanding, is that the, the actual word was, was spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, et cum spiritu tuo was right. Latin, which, yeah, for, for the longest time, we just said, and with you, and so you dropped an entire word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but fortunately, I think it was, what, 2011, where they, they worked on a new English translation that was more faithful to the actual text that we were supposed to be using. Right. And, and that's another funny thing too is that the new rite is in Latin. It's just that it's been translated to the other uh, languages. Funny enough, guys, whenever I first started going to, to the Catholic Church in the early two thousands, I got very used to a very specific form of the of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And then when I began to come into the church, everything sounded weird. <laughs> so it was after it was post two thousand eleven. Yeah, whenever I started coming in, so I didn't recognize a lot of stuff going on. So it was quite an interesting change for me. Yeah, I I found it funny when that happened um, because it wasn't that profound a change, but you definitely noticed it. And I remember at first thinking like, this is weird. Um, But not long after that, I got my hands on an actual um, copy of some of the Latin things that it was based on. And by this point, I had taken a few years of Latin in high school. Uh, so I, I would flip through it and I was like, wow, wow. Okay, yes, this is much better what we're doing now because it's actually what's written here instead of like chopping out a bunch of words just because there are all kinds of theories on why we chopped it out. I know some people thought it was just a matter of simplifying it because most people are too dumb to understand things like and with your spirit because we don't know what a spirit is. I don't know. Okay, so upon further research, I think the idea is that so when we say and with your is only addressed to an ordained minister and some people claim that it could be the gift of the spirit through the sacrament of holy, holy orders and so by us responding the people reassure the priest of the same divine assist spirit and most specifically the help for the priest to use the gifts of the spirit given to the priest upon the sacrament of holy orders to fulfill his prophetic function in the church. So when we say it with your spirit, we're really saying with the, the Holy Spirit working through the priests during the Mass. All right, that makes sense. And let's see. Okay, so after that now, at, at y'all's churches, uh, so at my church, it's really kind of like a, sometimes it, it, it's it's always there, sometimes it's, Depending on the priest, of course, because, you know, of course, the with the new mass, sometimes some things have, we have multiple forms of the same thing. It's just that sometimes the the, the words don't always seem to 
had the same oomph. But uh, then we have what we call the act of confession. And this is not the same as, you know, going to receive the sacrament of confession, but we have what we call the penitential act, where the priest acts, asks us to reflect on our sins so we could be able to prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. And then when we call, we begin what's called the confessi day, or the uh, confetti, or that where we begin to say, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words and what I have done and what I have failed to do. And then we strike our breast three times saying, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. And then we ask for the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. And do y'all, do y'all, at your masses, do y'all do the, that confess, confessionary prayer, or do y'all do a little bit different every now and then? It vary, varies a lot, and sometimes it just comes down to who is your deacon for that mass. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's the fuller version. That's the one I really like. Um, I really like it in part because it's really illustrative of how we understand ourselves going into the mass. Um, especially because sometimes I hear people where it's like, I was Catholic all these years and I always went to mass and no one ever told me about the gospel of salvation. And what they mean <laughs> is, you know, the gospel being the good news that we are sinners and we must be saved. You know, that Jesus right. died for us, that we can have salvation through faith in him. And I always, when I, whenever I hear that, I was like, wow, you must not have been paying attention at Mass. Because, like, when, what do we do when we go into Mass? Do we go in boasting of our good works? Right. How, you know, how worthy we are and what wonderful lives we've lived? No, we go in there and almost immediately it's like, yeah, we're all sinners before God. And who are we looking to to save us? Well, you know, the prayer, the, the, the penitential act mentions the Blessed Virgin and angels and saints so that's who you're looking to to save no 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 no. you're not paying attention uh, i've heard people say things like that no no what right. do we do we ask we ask mary angels saints and each other to do what to save us no to pray, pray for us me, pray for us to the lord our god so right off the bat we're saying i'm a sinner and i'm going to join with the rest of you sinners praying for mercy from god who alone can save me right okay and, right there yeah. like like if you were going to mass for 20 30 years and always listening to this and you never heard the gospels because you weren't listening right <laughs> uh, oddly enough we don't do that it comes yeah. later okay so, so what do you do in in the east well at least in your eastern right it's it's actually closer towards the um the point of the anaphora or the anaphora oh, okay i kind of like that that makes sense though because i mean yeah. what, what what is this act leading up to mm -hmm. you know, again with this theme of this is where you're hearing the start of the gospel but where do you go to for your salvation you're going to the cross which you encounter in the eucharist so with the anaphora mm -hmm. yeah you're much closer to that summit there's the there's the point where it's basically to the effect of um and forgive us for the sins that we commit with or without full knowledge. Ah, yeah. Very specifically. Yeah. Uh, do y'all do the Kyrie, the Laison, or something similar, Eddie? Oh, definitely. Definitely. But ours is, so that's during, again, closer to the anaphora. Okay. <laughs> um, that's interesting. And yeah, and of course, our, so 
the Maronite Church, our liturgical language is Syriac, which is kind of it's it's a it's a derivative of of Aramaic. So when the Syriac is done or the Aramaic is done, it's um it's very beautiful because you you follow up with the Kyrios and basically it's it's have mercy on us, O Lord, or have mercy on us, O Lord. Um, it's it's different. Like again, it's beautiful, but it's it's a point where you have the priest kneeling before the altar, and as he's doing so, you're you're praying. Of course, because the Kyrie eleison means have mercy on us. Mm-hmm. Um, you're asking for mercy from God at that point, right? Um, and it's a it's a it's a much different section. It, it's hard. It's hard to explain. It's just that. <laughs> uh, it, you you don't get lost in it when you're coming from a Roman church, but it, things are just in different places. Okay. So let's see. Yeah, so we would have, we would follow up with the Kyrie eleison, which means Lord have mercy, and then Priest eleison, Christ have mercy, and we say Kyrie eleison one more time, Lord have mercy. And, and that's when we transition to the uh, Gloria in Excelsis. So that's the, that's the song of the angels, right? During the, the Nativity of the Lord. Yeah, that's uh, well. I mean, the the, the first the first few words taken yeah. straight from that, yeah. and then we we kind of take it and run with it. So we we take the biblical part, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to people of goodwill," um, and then we that I believe that that's where we take it and run with it. We go mm-hmm. praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you, we give you thanks for your great glory, Lord God, Heavenly King, O God Almighty Father, and then we get into because we are Trinitarians. Fun fact, if you didn't notice that by this point, you may have issues. Um, <laughs> then we get into Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten Son, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. You take away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. You are seated at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. And I kind of like how that section flows. It has mm-hmm. this uh, three-couplet system that's really cool. Um, and then... For you alone are the Holy One, you alone are the Lord, you alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and the glory of God the Father. Amen. Yes. And so that is that is a very important hymn of praise. It's a, very, it's a great theology right there. It, it mm-hmm. tells you a lot about who God is and how we relate to Him. Um, so, yeah, that's that's why it's there. Right. <laughs> and... Uh... Yeah. Like, like was said earlier, everything is purposeful. It's there for a reason. Mm-hmm. And then we, uh, with 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 that, we then we go into the so for in the Catholic Church, every day has a specific purpose. Now, in the Catholic Church, we can have different uh, masses for uh, different you know different functions. So if we could celebrate the feast day of a certain you know day of remembrance, so like of course, when you think of like the major holidays like Easter or Christmas. You know, we can we have a specific, specific words to say for those those days, and of course, if we like right now we're in what we call ordinary time, we have every day has specific prayer uh, that day. Unless you have you know a specific intention for that mass, then you can have you know of course a mass for the dead, such as at a funeral, or you can also have a mass what we call a mass of reparation, where we literally devote the mass for the Lord's mercy on in our lives, and um and there's there's multiple multiple things but that's what we would call what we call the uh prayer or the collect that's what we would, we would call that portion and then after that that's when we begin the uh the liturgy of the word 
Yeah, and the, the, the collect you can kind of think of as a transition from our introductory right, where we're kind of setting the stage. The, and the collect is kind of setting a theme frequently. Mm-hmm. And it's also got an element of you just sang this big Gloria hymn. Now settle down, let's get to business. Because <laughs> um, right off the bat, after that, we're getting into the liturgy of the word. And you know what that means? That means we're sitting down, we're listening to somebody read the Bible. Yes. And um, so for us uh, in this rite, we typically have a reading of the Old Testament for our first reading that transitions into a psalm for the Mass of that day. A responsorial psalm so that everyone gets to participate with that and then we have a reading of the a usually an epistle of the new testament so like you know the letter of uh, saint paul or maybe saint james sometimes even the book of book of uh or the apocalypse saint john and then um finally we get to of course the words of our lord himself which is in the gospel yeah and it's, it's important to note that um, these, in the ordinary form of the Roman rite, there's a three-year rotation on these mm-hmm. readings. So there is a set reading for any given day. And over the course of that three-year cycle, you're getting a lot of scripture. You're not just hitting the same points over and over again. And you're not just getting your pastor's favorite readings mm-hmm. either. I, I know a lot of people who attend Protestant churches where your pastor is deciding what part of the Bible are we going to read today? <laughs> and frequently you get kind of locked into, well, here are the passages he likes to preach on, and here are the passages he doesn't like to preach on. And guess which one of those you're not going to hear a lot of? <laughs> but guess which one of those you really should also be hearing? And so it's kind of the great thing about <laughs> the way we do things in the Catholic Church, is if your pastor hates to preach on a selection, that's too bad. You're going to hear it. And, you know, maybe you'll have to sit through a rather awkward homily as he bumbles his way through it, but you will hear that part of Scripture. Um, I I don't recall, like, what percentage of the Old and New Testaments we hit in that cycle, but I think it is most of the New Testament, like 80-plus percent, you will get in. And the Old Testament's a, a much lower number. Um, but you still get a large part, and most of what's not in there is, you, you get a lot of the pro, the prophetic stuff that is really kind of tough to understand, or a lot of the stuff that's really just legalities or genealogies. Right. Frequently you don't, you don't want to have there. census data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're strategic with what we choose, but you do get um, pretty much anything that you really do need to hear works its way in there Mm -hmm. and then of course after that that's when we have either the deacon or the bishop or whoever seeks to do the sermon for that day or the homily Uh, and then typically the priest will make the uh, homily with respect to the readings of that day Um, sometimes if it's a you you know the, the day falls on like the feast day of a saint you know the priest may perhaps have done some research and Talk about the life and example of the saint of the day. And in um, other times, you might have a priest just go off in a wayward direction, you know, not talk <laughs> about the gospel at all. And you have these anecdotal stories of little Jimmy goes down to the store and somehow that has to talk about redemptive suffering or the salvific grace of God. So um, I one time heard a, a priest give a homily when it was, it was a few weeks back when I was on vacation 
um, in Florida, and, and and the guy equated his the the complaining of the children of Israel in the wilderness with Moses to his family on Sunday afternoon going to a pizza place. <laughs> The, uh, now, mind you guys, I, I understand that sometimes these, sometimes there is profound in the simple. Right. You know, but that's an oversimplification of what Moses had to go through. I'm sorry, pepperoni <laughs> over sausage? Come on. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, you know, and that's the thing, too. And, like, sometimes you have a homily that's short and sweet to the point, you know? And at other times, you, you you might have a very great orator, you know, like if you if you ever decide to read, you know, the church fathers on their sermons, you know, like St. John Chrysostom or even St. Augustine or St. Ambrose, their sermons, when you read them, they were not, they were not short. No. But to be fair, they were good at it. Oh, no, they were, some, no some, those, some, those are great. Those are great. Some, sometimes you get, you get priests where... Um, they're just meandering for a while. Oh gosh, yeah. Uh, we when I was going to college, uh, the the parish I went to, we had a deacon who was a great guy, but when he would give the homily, it was all over the place. And I, I knew some people that when they saw that he was going up there, they would just kind of they would retreat into some personal prayer uh, or, habit that they know. had because they knew that would be more profitable than trying to figure out what he was trying to say. Right, you know, or or you know, you might decide, oh, you know, that's that's really a good time to go use a restroom or something like that. You know, it's oh. like, you know. Well, okay, you know that one you should probably avoid if you can. I know, yeah, by all means, yes, but uh, yeah, uh. no, but there's yeah, there's 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 some sense of uh, moderation that should be present in the homily if it's not a sermon. So good common sense. Yes, <laughs> um, it's my understanding too, if I remember correctly, that really there. That priests were instructed to try to keep it as close to the the readings as exactly. they could. That's that's supposed yeah, you're to be supposed the, to. That's the ideal to reinforce that. Right. That's one yeah. of the things I love about the Catholic Church as opposed to the Protestant Church is that, while sure you get deep exegetical um, diatribes from some pastors, and that's kind of fun, um, but being able to apply the principles of the readings of the day mm-hmm. to my life practically yes to me yeah. is much more important than listening to some guy talk about what he studied that week and you know that that's one thing i like i like with uh you know with a lot of priests and especially my recent priests over here in my community that there's there's an emphasis on on the practical understanding and it's not so much as like interpreting scripture with our life, but rather interpreting our life with scripture, you know, and so it puts you in a, in a more, I guess you could say consistent sense of view, of, you know, worldview of like, what are you doing with your life? Are you, because for example, this past, uh, this past Sunday, uh, we, we focused on, our, our priests focused on, on um, the problem of jealousy and it was actually pretty cool, like the way he d- described it. The thing is, though, is that a lot of times, uh, you know, you have to mind sometimes what the priest is saying. But he was pretty much flat out, like old school, you know, jealousy bad, you know, 
be be gracious, be charitable, and um, these other kinds of things. But um, anyway, so that now I'm starting to sound like that rambling uh, homilist. So uh, <laughs> the thing is, okay, so let's go move forward. So after the homily, we usually have a moment of silence, and then we begin our profession of faith, which is going to be the Nicene Creed. So basically, you've heard the test material. Now's the test. <laughs> no, no, not really. Um, so the creed, um, this is a very old profession of faith, just saying what we believe as a church. And something that's interesting about this, a lot of people miss, is it's very intentional that, at least in the Roman rite, we use mm-hmm. the form of, I believe, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Right. I believe, da-da-da-da-da. Because you, when you have, uh, I know some communities will say something like, we believe, and then they'll have a problem with people who say collectively. Yeah, originally, I believe, yeah, the form was we believe. And then the idea with that was to, you know, this is the profession of the church. The problem is some people would then say, well, okay, the church as a whole believes this, but, you know, maybe there are some articles I don't believe in, which was missing the point. The point was, this is the faith of the church. This is what you believe if you are part of the church. And so, um, and the great thing about the creed is, for the most part, this is stuff people um, can agree with, whether they're Catholic or Protestant. It's unusual to come across a Protestant who looks at the creed and is like, I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like that, unless they're like off the deep end in some sort of ridiculous like, theological modernism or liberalism where it's like, I don't really believe that there's a God, I don't really believe that there's morality, blah, blah, blah. You know, Okay, at that point, you're beyond helping with the creed. Um, but yeah, so the typical form we use is we call it the Nicene Creed because it's based on a creed drawn up the Council of Nicaea, which, contrary to a lot of conspiracy theories, was not when the Roman Emperor Constantine invented the Catholic Church out of thin air. Uh, ask any the- any historian, they'll tell you no. Uh, but when we were settling the Arian controversy over the divinity of Christ, there was another council later to address the question that kind of follows from that, which is what about the Holy Spirit? That's the Council of Constantinople, the first Council of Constantinople. And they kind of expanded the creed. And so technically it's the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed, but everybody just calls it the Nicene creed. Mm -hmm. And um, just to go through it, it's, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Again, the Trinitarian thing, next we're going to get into I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Those last few lines, that was what Nicaea was all about, because the Arians were like, "Mm, not sure we believe that. And then, of course, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And here's the point where um, our typical practice is actually to bow, because we're going to get to this this pivot point of history where everything changes. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. So this is where we talk about the incarnation. Then we get into the story of what Christ did for us. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. So big section on Jesus and what he did, but that's there for a reason. Then we get into 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. And in the Roman rite, we say, and the Son. That's going to be its own episode at some point. <laughs> Eddie, um, do we have Eddie? We're here. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, so in the Maronite Church, when we say, when in the Creed you say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, what comes immediately afterwards? And the Son. And the Son. Okay. So you may, the Maronites are very Latinized, so you would have... We are. We, um, are um, we are Chalcedonian. Yes. And Nicene. Yes. Uh, well, of course, anybody who's Catholic is going to be mm-hmm. Chalcedonian and Nicene. Um, a lot of Eastern Christianity does not have this line's ending of and the sun, um, because that wasn't originally there. Originally, because they were just trying to address the question of whether the Holy Spirit is also God, they wanted to get in that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. But the question of whether the Holy Spirit also proceeds from the Son was left open. And you had some divergence in theology on that question. The West tended to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And in the East, there was a greater tendency to say either only the Father, or maybe from the Father through the Son, or a lot of them just kind of said, you know what, a council has given us a creed, we're not going to mess with it. And so it's kind of interesting, Eddie, the Maronites being very Latinized, you say the Father and the Son. But I know when I went to a Byzantine Catholic mm-hmm. church, you didn't say and the Son. If you, if you, if you inserted and the Son, you get some weird looks. Not, we not actually... necessarily because they didn't don't believe it in some sense, but just because as an Eastern church that's very traditional and not very Latinized, they try to maintain the older form of it where you don't address that question. That really does come from Chalcedon, though, um, because that's where some of the churches split off. Um, well, some, that's, that's a different question at Chalcedon. Uh, but well, the reason why, the, the word consubstantial, though, um, so we actually give glory to the consubstantial trinity. Right. In our mass, um, and and I'll well when we go through our liturgy, well because again like if we're if we're going if we're gonna go side by side between the two, we're gonna have a three hour long um, yes. podcast. Yes. So it's easier to break this up into a couple different ones. And I'm and I'm hoping that we can also get um, a local priest here with the Belkite Church, which of course is a is a Byzantine rite. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to maybe get him on as well so we can kind of talk through a few more things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, very specifically, like the, the Maronites are very Latinized when it comes to that. And it does come, it does come from that specific council too, um, because of the consubstantiality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, yeah. that's gonna that that's gonna be an interesting topic yeah. for a future discussion because I, yeah. I, I know a lot of Eastern Catholics who wouldn't quite look at it the same right. way. But Anyway, we, we still have things to say about the Holy Spirit. We say, yeah. who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. So that is, he is to be worshipped as God. So that was what was important at the Council of, of Constantinople. And we also say, who has spoken through the prophets? So that's what we say about the Spirit. Not as much as we say about the Son, but still very important things. But then we get into a more general profession of what else do we believe? 
I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, uh, which is an interesting line because I know some Protestant churches where they take that and they want to do something with the word Catholic um, because people might start to think, well, that means like the big C Catholic church. Um, now, in the context of this creed, it may mean more like Catholic as an adjective, and so some keep it as that, but then try to explain how Catholic as an adjective doesn't mean the big C Catholic church, which is bunk. Um, but I, I've seen some weird perversions of it where it's like, I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church, which is kind of like, well, yeah, we do, but that's not what the creed is trying to say there. But anyway. Moving along, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So that is the creed, and with our explanation and commentary, it probably sounded much longer than it actually was. <laughs> it's long, though. It's not as it long is. as the Athanasian creed. But... Oh, oh, no, God. goodness. Now, uh, <laughs> now, sometimes with some priests whenever i guess time's running a bit low or that kind of thing because it's always unfortunate whenever people feel that they need to compress the mass to fit within a one hour time schedule but have y'all ever had it where the priest uh does the renewal of baptismal vows instead of the creed instead i've had it where i've had it where they huh. done the apostles creed and not the nicene creed yeah i that's yeah. where i thought you were going i had never heard of the which renewal that's baptism that's allowable instead. that's allowable yeah in, in the roman uh, missile uh, according mm -hmm. to the rubrics there like it's allowable to do the apostles creed instead of the nicene creed but i've never heard about the baptismal yeah it's very interesting because you know of course so if those who know not familiar with the baptismal promises we 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 say let's go ahead and renew our baptismal promises together okay do you reject satan i do and then all his works i do and all his empty promises i do and then this is when we kind of uh, break down it's kind of like a simplified form of the the creed you know do you believe in god the father almighty creator of heaven and earth i do do you believe in jesus christ his only son our lord who was born of the virgin mary was crucified died and was buried rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the father i do do you believe in the holy spirit the holy catholic church the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body and life everlasting i do and so mm -hmm. that's that's the renewal of your and basically, it's a condensed version of the Apostles' Creed. If, if the Apostles' Creed could even be seen to be condensed. but That's an interesting way of doing things. So, I, 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 I've, yeah, I've that never before. seen that. I, okay. I don't think I've ever seen that. I, I think that would fall outside of the rubrics, if, if I remember correctly. Oh, no, um, the match is invalid. I'm just kidding. No, we, uh, <laughs> no we're, not, we're not like that. Legal I'm not going to get into that, but <laughs> yeah, we, we don't want to be like, um, oh goodness, what was that? That's, like there was some site that associated itself with the SSPX, which usually isn't quite this crazy, but it's something about how the the new mass was not valid because at some point the priest was supposed to put his fingers in one way, and at the new mass he does something else with his fingers. And that makes it invalid. It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the idea of a, a valid versus invalid mass is its own kind of painful excursion. But half of what you're going to see on the internet is, is rigorous nonsense. 
Just on the other side, you will also run into people where it's like, we're going to do something absolutely insane and we're going to pretend it's real. Like if you've heard of the Roman Catholic Women Priests Association, which, you know, they're not Roman, they're not Catholic, they're not priests, and frequently they're not even actually women. <laughs> um, not not that I like going there, but uh, to be honest, sometimes they're not. Like if they if they pretend to have a mass, that's not a mass. But sounds like Anglican to, nonsense. <laughs> it really does, and at that point, just become Anglican. Yeah, if you don't yeah. want to be Catholic, but you want to pretend, become Anglican. <laughs> Catholic okay. cosplay is fun, I guess. I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> All right, anyway. so after we do the creeds, we then proceed with the offertory. So do you want to explain the theological importance of the offertory? I mean, which aspect do you want to get into? I mean, okay, I guess, uh, there, I guess a lot of people... There's actually quite a bit there. No, I know, there, there, there's a ton. It's just that a lot of people seem to think that the offertory is basically the bringing the body, the blood, uh, or the, the, the bread and the wine to the to the altar, but a lot of people don't, they don't see the importance of that. This is also where you bring your prayers to the lord your intentions and yeah. and so much else to there yeah and this is you know part of that cooperative understanding of god's mercy and grace it is not that you know you know god is just sitting there waiting for us to finally do our part but no he calls us in to offer our prayers offer some sort of substance whether that is in the bread and the wine that traditionally were actually grown by members of the parish um, obviously, in a industrialized economy, that doesn't work out as often. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, of course, the, the the monetary offerings we make for uh, the church's work. Right. And so it is, you know, still a kind of a sacrificial element in terms of here's what we have to offer. And when it comes to the bread and the wine part, that's where then God takes what we have and then makes it just so totally other mm-hmm. um, that it becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. Now, uh, do y'all, at y'all's masses, does the priest, you know, ever off, say the words of the offering out loud, or does he keep them under his breath? Because sometimes, depending on the priest, like, for example, for the offering of the host, the priest would say, uh, Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life. Sometimes. So sometimes, uh, right, because, like, because sometimes we hear the words, and that's when people say, "Blessed be God forever," you know. Mm-hmm. And but other times, you know, sometimes it's just said under under the breath or during during the offertory hymn, basically. So different for us. Mm. And uh, let's see. Of course, we say for the offering of the chalice, "Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the wine we offer you, uh, fruit of the vine and work of human hands. It will become our spiritual drink." And it's very interesting because really beautiful prayers that the priest says on behalf of the of the people. You know, he says by the mystery uh, earlier on. Uh, whenever the um, so there's a lot of things that have meaning. Like you might notice at a mass when the priest receives the wine, and he notices that you might also see there's also a vial of water, and he pours a little wine into the uh, a little water into the wine. And uh, the priest says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful, uh, you know, development of the of the mass as it as it as it increases. Uh, at, at some point, we also have for the priest, it does a has his wa- hands washed. And 
I've heard some Protestants misinterpret this. Like, some people are like, oh, just like Pontius Pilate washing his hands before the <laughs> You know, and that's completely not the point. You know, it's completely not the point. Uh, but, no, there's 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 ritual ritual washings within the Catholic Church are very yeah. similar to. It goes back to the Jewish faith again because again there were ritual washings that would have to happen during that time as well. Right. And so uh, the pre- now in the in the let in the traditional in the you know the the extraordinary form in the you know the, the old line right beautiful prayers of course you know these these are mostly prayers that the priest says to himself and and he you know he is a beautiful preparation of the mind and the body for to be able to behold the, the Lord our God in the in the in the in the ordinary form the priest just mostly says quietly uh, wash me O Lord from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin and washes his hands and. At that moment, we believe that the sins, uh, the, the sins of the priests are, at least through the hands, are, are no longer present. And so, therefore, the hands are holy to be prepared to begin the prayer over the gifts. And then we have um, eventually the preface and Eucharistic prayer. That's whenever, that's when all the meat and potatoes of the Mass occur. <laughs> um, let's see. So, we have the preface. Now, some people, some uh, so in the Catholic, in the New Rite, we have multiple Eucharistic prayers. Uh, usually the, the traditional Eucharistic prayer is what we call Eucharistic Prayer 1, which is also called the Roman Canon. And that one typically has a preface. Uh, I think all the Eucharistic prayers except uh, Eucharistic Prayer 4 have a preface that's unique to the day and, and time or whatever the, um, the, the day is going to be celebrated. And of course, after the preface... This is when we begin the the whole thing. So the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And we say, it is right and just. And then the priest proceeds on with the um, the preface. And then we transition to the sanctus. So that's when we say, uh, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Uh, you know, Lord God, power of might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Was on the highest, so that's kind of like uniting ourselves with the highest choir of angels, the seraphim. Yeah, and, and that's then, biblical. Yes, now, a lot of people right, you may recognize Isaiah, these right? words. That's Isaiah six three, yeah. and I believe also Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, Revelations has some. Uh, yeah, four eight, I believe. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, "Holy, holy, holy." This is NIV, so it's a little off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come? So, uh, the first part of that we incorporate into this summit of our worship. Right, and you know, let me go ahead and just go go over the preface because a lot of people they they're not paying attention to what's happening in the mass. But of course, the priest is truly mm-hmm. saying, you know, it's, it is truly right and just our duty and our salvation always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, Eternal God. Through Christ our Lord, for through his paschal ministry he accomplished the marvelous deed by which he has freed us from the yoke of sin and death, summoning us to the glory of being now called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of for your own possession to proclaim everywhere your mighty works, for you have called us out of darkness into your wonderful light. And then that's when we did the transition. And so with the angels and archangels, with thrones and dominions, with all the hosts and powers of heaven, we sing the name of glory as without end we acclaim. Now, of course, depending on who's doing the Mass, you might have a Palestrini Sanctus. You might have the Dan Shoot My Little Pony Mass. 
you are giving glory to God Almighty, and no matter what happens, you know, you're still, as long as your heart is in the right place, regardless how banal the music is, you're, you're still giving glory to the Lord. And then upon that, that's when we have the canon of the Mass, where we, um, the, the, the priest begins to bless the offerings of the, of the, the blood and the, uh, not the blood, the, the bread and the wine. Then, of course, we pray for the Pope, and then we pray for the local bishop. And then we have a commemoration of the living. And uh, let's see, and then we have the communicantus, where we have the prayer asking for the invocation of the Virgin Mary and the, all the blessed apostles and martyrs. Then, of course, if you're reading the Roman, uh, the Roman canon, which is Eucharistic prayer, when we have a whole lot of uh, saints and, and martyrs going along and um and of course we have the remembrance of those who have passed on and then we have the um the oblation where we ask the lord to um that these things may become the body and blood of our lord jesus christ and then finally we have the consecration of the host and the consecration of the wine and of course at this point do we say the priest becomes persona christi during the consecration I mean, are, are you asking if it's like only in this moment or? Right, like during during the consecration of the host. I mean, during the consecration, he definitely is. Mm -hmm. I don't right. know whether we would consider him as in persona Christi at other moments in some sense. But yeah, here definitely. Um, because who is our high priest? You know, Jesus Christ. So who is it that's truly offering the sacrifice? No, Jesus Christ. So we can say with, with, with full certainty then that whenever the priest says, you know, take take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body which will be given up for you. And at that moment, that's Christ speaking to us. Yeah, we're, we're hearing the vibrations from the vocal cords of a man. But, you know, again, liturgy, the sensible yeah. thing is letting us experience what is really going on, which is Christ his command from the Last Supper echoing throughout the ages with the eternal sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And all this is all, and these words are all from the, the, the gospel, correct? Do y'all remember which? I believe this is taken from Matthew's account, but I could be wrong. Okay. I want to say that that's uh, Matthew and Mark both or something similar. And then, of course, First Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's another point when I was talking earlier about how First Corinthians kind of has this formula for what you're saying at this point of the worship. Well, it's right here. It's odd because, again, in the Maronite Church, we're everything's kind of shifted to different points. Mm -hmm. So the the anaphora it, it it gives a lot of um a lot of the same things just in different places. Um, and the prayer is a lot longer. And then again, a lot of it's chanted as well. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a bit different. Yeah. And, and we're, we're all pretty much, we're kneeling at this point. Do y'all remember when we start kneeling? Is it after the Holy Holy? Hosanna in the highest. Yeah. Blessed is he yeah. who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's the point when you all kneel. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, we're all, we're all kneeling. And then we proclaim the mystery of faith. And in the in the Roman Rite, we have three accepted um, mysteries of faith. So you could either say or sing, "We proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again." 
Um, another one would be, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. Or the third one, save us, Savior of the world, for by your cross and resurrection, you have set us free. And after that, we uh, the priest continues on with his uh, prayers for the faithful, that, that the Lord may, you know, grant us the, uh, the blessings and graces of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we have, um, oh, okay, then we have the commemoration of the day. Okay, I had, I had that somewhere else in my mind, but okay. And then, um, so, of course, we pray for the, the daily departed. And then upon which um, we have the, after the completion of the um, consecration, we have the, the great, um, kind of like this, this beautiful prayer of through him and with him and in him. O oh God Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory, all glory and honor is yours now and forever. And then we all say amen. And then after that we have, what is it? The Our Father. We pray mm -hmm. the Our Father. And we, we all stand to rise in Our Father. Now, with you all, do you all extend your hands with, with the other people during the Our Father? Or do you all keep them to your sides or in your class? <laughs> I, I tend to fold my hands. There, there's not a rubric telling you what you're supposed to be doing with your hands, but the rubrics of the liturgy in general do reserve the kind of what the, what we call the Oran's posture, which mm -hmm. is where you're you're standing with your hands side to side. And of course, I'm doing it physically right now, but this is a podcast; you can't see me. <laughs> um, but you, I'm you, picturing you, know you doing it, James. It. Yeah, but anyway, in in the Roman rights that is reserved for the pastor so you're not really supposed to do it um but you know what else you're also not supposed to do you're not supposed to sit there and judge your fellow christian when you're supposed right. to be praying the lord's prayer so that's kind of a caution that's thrown in there like i definitely notice when people are doing it wrong but i have to kind of like no that's a distraction i don't need to focus on what they're doing wrong and they're probably not doing it wrong on purpose i've never met someone who is like Oh yeah, I guess the, the the rubrics say that's not for me to do, but I'm going to do it anyway because I was born in nineteen in the nineteen fifties, and my generation does what it wants. <laughs> I, I don't think so. So now in our missal, it actually tells you to raise your hands. Yes. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But again, you're not Roman, so no. you get very very important customary differences. Yes. They each have their own purpose and origins. And we would say with them that there's not one that's like universally good or universally bad. They're, cu they're customary. They serve a purpose. They have their own origins. Um, but no. none of us should look at the other and we're like, you're doing it wrong. No, you're you doing also, right, you're right. You also give the greeting of peace next. We did it yes. earlier. Really? Interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think what's also interesting too is, okay, so we say, we say of course, we say, we say our father, right? Yeah, and then of course we say, "But deliver us from evil." And then the priest continues on saying, "Deliver us, O Lord. We pray from every evil. Graciously, graciously grant us peace in our days, that by the help of your mercy we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress, as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ." And this is when we say, "And is it true for a lot of Protestants they they always end our Father before that is the kingdom, the power, and the glory of yours now and forever?" Is yes, in my experience yeah. that's near universal. Yes. Yeah. In fact, it, it, it was always fun when I would attend the pro-life club in college. Uh, it was a fun fact. A lot of us Catholics are pro-life for some odd reason. 
Um, maybe something <laughs> about the church condemning murder. I don't know. Um, but we had these pro-life meetings and half the room would be evangelical Protestants, half the room would be Catholics, and we would open with a prayer. And whenever we did the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, half the room would cut off after deliver us from evil and the other right. half would keep going. And depending on who was presiding over the meeting, that either meant that half the room got cut short or the <laughs> other half just kind of sat there awkwardly. And we we actually finished the prayer. Really? The priest doesn't cut off in the middle. Yeah, it's, huh. again, <laughs> there are several things that are quite different. Interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Like, so that like, oh, yeah. when we go through our order of the mass in the Maronite church, I think it's going to, it's really going to surprise you. Right. Like it's, it's, you're going to see a lot of the same things. Like um, there's a lot of Trinitarian blessings. I also like just on a side note um, for Pasha week. So mm. you have in the Roman, right? You have the Tritium. Mm-hmm. We have Pasha week. Um, for the season of Lent, we begin on Ash Monday instead of Ash Wednesday. And our, um, our fasting is, is typically held until noon. Hmm. So it's, there's, there's some differences and traditions there, but Pasha week isn't celebrated as a, as necessarily it's leading up to a very joyful moment. Right, where we also we also bury bury Christ mm-hmm. um, during the uh, the Good Friday liturgy as well um, in a tomb, and and then he's he's brought out at one point on a bed of flowers that mm-hmm. then pers- uh, processes around the church grounds. It's it's a very different, very very different liturgy yeah. from the Roman Church. Um, but it's 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 an ancient thing too at the same time because of course our, our liturgy has been around since give or take four ten. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a few changes to it here and there, but for the most and part, what, we've kept a lot what's of. What's the average length Eddie, of a Maronite liturgy? Mm, our our fifteen. Okay, that's not bad. Daily mass is longer. Really, Daily mass is longer. Wow. Yeah, it's about forty five minutes. Okay. As opposed to about oh minutes. okay I thought yeah. you were saying like it was Monday, oh yeah, yeah that was Sunday <laughs> it was like whoa how is that even possible <laughs> no 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 daily mass is longer um also we don't have three readings we only have two readings at our particular parish mm-hmm. okay so, so we have the it... epistle and then the gospel okay. and see that's that's I think that's in the traditional Latin mass too you only yeah have the epistle that, and... that's kind of the more ancient practice in East mm-hmm. and West. And it's one, of, it's one of those places where I'm willing to let my antiquarianism slide. I, I do like that we incorporate that, even if it isn't the 2,000-year-old custom. Right. <laughs> you know, but the thing is, the important part, again, is that Scripture is a central focus of yes. the Mass. Yes. And the whole, really, the whole Mass itself is, is chock full of it. Like, you just have to listen for it. I, I, not to interrupt, but one like one thing I just want to point out, and I think it's very important, that when you go to a Mass, it is important that you really pay attention to what's going on. The words that are being said, the songs that are being sung, they have a purpose. They have a reason. Um, it's to lift the soul to God. It's there specifically to... to come to what we call the summit 
of Christianity, which is the Eucharist. You know, that's the source and the summit of everything that we have is the Eucharist. And during the Mass, it all should be, like, basically, I, I think there's, in, in our right, and a lot of times the, the songs are sung in Arabic. Mm-hmm. So, and my Arabic is not the best in the world. Um, but there's, there's a, there's a procession to communion and it's basically Mm -hmm. as if you're walking up a hill or up a mountain and it kind of focuses to that, that point. I think the, the phrase that, um, blessed Pierre Giorgio Frasati would use, I think this is also in your, in the Latin, right? Um, verso alto to the heights. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, is a lot of the times what what's kind of like that that idea is that 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 is we're 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 working our way to the source and the summit. But I'll let you get get back. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's it's kind of no, important. No I think it's important to understand that you know that that the words that are being said. It's not like there's a lot of tradition, a lot of ritual that we go through, and for some people that can be kind of boring. Mm-hmm. But if you allow yourself to actively participate in that and to truly be transformed by it, it's going to change your life. Oh, I agree. And, you know, the thing is, like, now, for us, like, we're all pretty much INTJs, so when it comes <laughs> to the sign of peace, um, a lot of us either just keep to our local area. There are, I know there are people who will go across the church to say hi to somebody else, and that's I, typically Yeah, I don't what you're think that's actually what you're supposed to be doing. I, if, if I recall correctly, the sign of peace is meant in part to be um, kind of an obedience to our Lord's command that when we are going to offer our gifts at the altar, we should reconcile with our brothers. Mm-hmm. And so in the course of the liturgy, if you have the sign of peace, it is this moment of reconciliation, but it's kind of meant to be a local thing, both in terms of one if you're there with people, it's probably family and friends with whom you may have some sort of beef. And that's kind of your moment to say, well, I mean, what you're supposed to say is some variation of peace be with you. But right. you know, there's a lot being said behind that. Um, but with the people around you, that's supposed to be kind of your general statement of, of you know, a, a desire for reconciliation and peace with the community. It's not a call to go and say hi to all of your friends who are present. <laughs> Pre-COVID. 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 That's an interesting point. Uh, the sign of peace, while it's a regular part of the Mass, it's not an essential part. It can be, I, the word we use is suppressed, but that sounds much nastier than it actually is. It's, it <laughs> well, sounds like someone's coming in with a trench and it's like, no. But, but, um, in, in light of COVID, a lot of places, like in my diocese, have suppressed the sign of peace because it can be a means of spreading disease. I know some places where they just do that regularly during flu season. Now, whether that's an appropriate practice, eh, I don't know. But either way, it's still valid. One of the ways that this happens in the Maronite Church is actually kind of interesting. Peace is given from the priest to the deacon or subdeacon. The deacon or the subdeacon then takes it to a person and like you hold your hands in like a prayerful pose. They will then place their hands over your hands, giving you like almost physically giving you peace. And you pass that on to your neighbor and it goes from person to person. 
So it's a little bit of a different practice. It's not done yeah. everywhere, but that, that was kind of the more traditional way that I was taught it. So yeah. that's interesting. And it kind of emphasizes that this, this is something we do as a body. Exactly. You know, we're, we're not just kind of atoms floating out there as an archipelago <laughs> on a vast sea, but like we are there as one body. Yeah. And we're trying to dwell as one body in peace at this, our most holy moment of worship. Right. And so we, we after upon that, the priest, you know, does something. He, he breaks a little piece of the, the hose into the chalice. And then, of course, quietly. That's the thing a lot of times, a lot of people in the new right want to hear everything that the priest says over the microphone so you can like get the full experience but a lot of times these are just kind of private prayers and that's why in the traditional latin rite you know that you have a lot of silence especially in the low mass you have a lot of silence as a priest is doing the liturgy because a lot of these prayers are really meant for the priest alone but the priest would say quietly you know may the smingling of the body and the blood of our lord jesus christ bring eternal life to us who receive it so it's a very beautiful prayer and then we transition to the Agnus Dei, which means the Lamb of God. And so uh, we sing or pray or uh, or say, you know, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. And then Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world, grant us peace. And so it's a beautiful little prayer. I think that's from, is that from Revelation? That, that... I mean, there are elements. The, the right. Lamb of God imagery is just all over Revelation. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know how much of that is lifted straight out of scripture. The youngest day is my favorite Latin prayer. Mm -hmm. By far. So many beautiful, um, beautiful renderings. Uh, wasn't it Samuel Barber, right? He did the, the, the Agnes day as a, as a chorus based off of his, um, one of his string quartets that became the Adagio for strings. Mm. And and it's a beautiful yeah yeah so so he did he did a a version of the uh, he he did a resetting of his uh, um, what do you call it adagio for strings which is the second movement of one of his string quartets and and he set it to the words of the Augustines absolutely sublime so if you have a chance to check it out it's beautiful very calm soothing now would you want to sing this at mass if you want to make the mass over an hour and a half two hours long go ahead. <laughs> But the Agnes Day would take about like it's about eight or nine minutes, according to with Barbara's version. That's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Um, I'd never put that together before, but running the music through my head, I can see it. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. Um, and of course, the priest will begin. Uh, will will then say quietly again, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Living God, who by the will of the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit, through your death gave life to the world, free me by this your most holy body and blood from all my sins and from every evil keep me always faithful to your commandments and never let me be never let me be parted from you and um then after that the priest says it to himself then the priest genuflects and then of course he raises the the um communion oh i think i kind of like speed, sped run did i, I speed run the, this thing but during the consecration what's also very important for us is that Upon the consecration of the host and the and the and the wine, um, when the priest lifts it up, what do we say? We repeat the words of Saint Thomas, and we say, "Lord and my God." Yes. So that's that's really the 
moment when we truly accept that the pre that the host is not just bread anymore. It's the wine. It's not just wine anymore. It's the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, um, then this is what what James was saying about it. Uh, during the communion, right before we receive communion, that's when we have uh, the priest say, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. And the, together with the people, we add, we say in response, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And then, of course, that's when we have communion. And if if you just have only the host, then you say, the priest says, the body of Christ, and you say, Amen. And um, the, ours and is a little the, bit different, too. Okay. Um, we actually give the Holy Ghost with the Holy. Uh-huh. Um, so there's actually, there's a, a little bit of a song that goes there, and then um, also just the way that it's it's handled. Again, it's going to be very interesting. <laughs> we... yeah. No, of course. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm excited. No, that, that's, a, that's a cool part. I always liked it when I was going to the Byzantine church. The right. you know, version they would use was really neat. I liked it a lot. Okay, so yeah, we're talking about receiving. Um, communion can be received under one or both species because right. we as Catholics believe that the body and blood of Christ aren't really separated. Because um, you know, this is a bloodless sacrifice. Christ is one. He reigns on his throne in heaven. Uh, accordingly, when you receive in one species, you receive the whole Christ. Even the slightest particle, you receive the whole Christ. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll speak what we call phenomenologically uh, when you're receiving, though, um, because in addition to truly being Christ, each element represents Christ either in his body or his blood. So when you receive um, with the host, you'll be told the body of Christ. It's the whole Christ, but what the bread represents is the body of Christ, um, alongside being the whole Christ. And likewise, if the cup is offered, it may or may not be offered because it's not necessary, because mm -hmm. again, it's the whole Christ. Um, you told the blood of Christ. In either case, in the Roman rite, you're supposed to say amen. Uh, yes. This is another thing that's very different in a lot of Eastern churches. Um, I know in the Byzantine rite, um, there is a prayer the priest intones over you frequently using your name if he knows you and then you're not supposed to say anything you just open up and you receive um and he'd actually spoon it into your mouth <laughs> which you know is, is very weird for someone who's raised and formed as a roman catholic to experience but it is really cool the way they do things um what do maronites do um besides uh, you talked about intention um Basically, the body of Christ given to you for the forgiveness of your sins, mm. and then you take and you eat it, and 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 kind of go on from there. Usually, I would say, "Amen." Uh, step away and cross myself, and then and then go back. Um, again, we don't kneel after receiving either. Mm. Um, we stand or sit reverently. Okay, but whereas us Romans, after you've received, um, it it is customary when you go up to receive, you show some sign of reverence bowing is very common but other people have different practices um after you've received normally what you do is you cross yourself and very prayerfully you go back to your place in a, you know a pew usually and uh normally you kneel and well you commune uh you you pray you contemplate you just dwell with the lord who you've uh, received 
Now, some places they don't kneel. Like uh, when I was living out in Washington in the Archdiocese of Seattle, the custom was you would all stand afterwards, although they didn't stop you from kneeling. So sometimes I kneeled instead. Um, and some places will differ how they handle music during communion, yeah. which is something that sometimes irks me because a lot of times they want to do something really lively and in your face and attention grabbing during communion. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. You step to the side. This is not your moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but m- most places, if they know what they're doing, the music will be, again, setting atmosphere for this unworldly moment mm-hmm. you are stepping out of time and you are receiving the lord as he hung from the cross as he rose from the grave as at the last supper he instituted this sacrifice that would echo throughout time until he comes again uh, it's an amazing moment it's a profound moment we don't always realize it because we're so caught up in our senses and our experience right. And that's why a lot of places, you know, they, they want to institute like a sense of like sacred silence after, during communion. Yeah, the role of silence in liturgy is an interesting question. Like you talked about the, the old Latin mass, a mm-hmm. lot of silence. And it's kind of an interesting question in the modern day, because if you are formed by modernity, where just there's something in your face all the time, silence actually can be very unsettling. And so a lot of people, when you have those, those silent moments, they're just kind of awkward because they're used to there being some sort of stimuli to respond to. And they're just kind of there with themselves, nothing between them and God. Yeah, normally there's supposed to be some sort of banging hymn or someone saying stuff between them and God, but no, in the silence, there's nothing. And what do you do? <laughs> Whereas, you know, pre-industrial people frequently used to acquire their life Perhaps we're better prepared for that. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting question. Yeah. Let's see. Um, so upon that, you know, everyone goes. And see, the thing about communion, too, is that, you know, those who are in a state of grace, those are the ones who should truly receive the, the body and blood of our Lord. Um, you know, even though we are a church of sinners, we, we still have standards to to uphold here. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing to get into. Like, sometimes when you go to a mass, you'll see people who will, uh, in the Roman rite, what you do normally is you cross your arms over your chest, and you'll go up and you'll receive a blessing uh, from a priest or a deacon instead of receiving communion. And that gets down to the church's theology of uh, a state of grace. If you believe you may not be in a state of grace because of some mortal sin you may have committed, then yet is it advised that out of respect for the Lord who is, and this is something we've kind of lost in modern Christianity because we want to be so soft and warm and comfortable. Uh, God is kind of this terrifying ultimate thing. Uh, not a thing isn't really a good word, um, but, to, but to approach to receive God outside of his grace is this, the thing that if, if we understood what was going on, we'd be horrified. Uh, St. Paul talks about this. He chastises people for receiving uh, the Lord unworthily, especially if they're not discerning the Lord's presence in the com- in communion. Uh, he tells them, you know, this is why you're suffering so many things. 
and there are several ways of reading it. Some people just read it in terms of you're committing such a horrid sacrilege that you you are inviting wrath upon you. There are other ways of understanding it in terms of sickness and health and whatnot. But yeah, I, part of that just comes down to we as modern people do not appreciate how profound communion is and we don't understand how just ultimate and other God is. And we just kind of approach him like it's any other day, mm-hmm. any other act. No, it's not. <laughs> and just because we can't with our senses perceive his presence doesn't mean that we shouldn't act as though there's something other than the ultimately overwhelming at work here. Right. But interesting note, um, if you are in a state of grace, we do understand uh, communion as something that is um, salvific in, in, insofar as you are growing and more deeply rooting the salvation you've received, but also it forgives sins. Um, because what are you doing? You're going before a cross. That's literally what you're doing. You're going before the cross. You're receiving the sacrifice that takes away our sins and gives us new life. So, if you which is you part of why our of grace, that. yeah, you go for it because it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really kind of a tragedy that there have been times in church history where people were so afraid of potentially receiving unworthily, like I sneezed the wrong way this morning. Well, maybe I'm not worthy. Like that kind of nonsense. Um, the church at one point had to institute rules telling people at least once a year receive because um, they were so scared to. That's the other side of the, the coin. You don't want to be so casual about it that you're not recognizing who God is, but you don't want to be so just terrified of communion that you're also not recognizing who God is. Because uh, communion being the cross and the empty tomb and the Last Supper it is one of these places where God's justice and mercy and love are all synthesized, and you've got to recognize all of that when you approach. Mm-hmm. So approach, but approach worthily. Right. Short form of that. And so upon that, then the priest will gather the things, you know, clean the the uh, you know the chalice and the you know all all the all the. Uh, all the basically the, the means and that he used on, on the altar and then um, typically you, you have the um, the unused hosts will be collected and you know we have we can talk about this another day but like you know like the cleaning of the, the vessels and all that kind of very interesting how how they're supposed to go about things we have yeah we should, we should probably just leave that as yeah. you want to be <laughs> no. very careful with it because, of course, it's the Lord you're talking about, but right. a lot of it is rooted, again, back in Jewish temple practices mm-hmm. regarding the old sacrifices. Yes. Um, because you wanted to be very careful with the uh, sacred vessels for that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, all, all the more when your sacrifice is the Lord's sacrifice on Calvary. Yes. Um, and then we have the blessing and dismissal. So we're finally at the end of the mass. And so that's when we have, you know, we once again, everyone stands up. The priest says, Lord be with you. We respond and with your spirit. And unless he has something else to say or, you know, to mention, we basically, he basically gives us a blessing, you know, may the almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as we cross ourselves as we follow along. And of course, you know, it's, it's all interesting is that at the end of the mass, I remember some people, 
would say different words for like for example sometimes they say go in peace go in peace glorifying the lord by your life go and announce the gospel lord and you know of course the traditional go forth the mass is ended but and, and of course we respond thanks be to god but it's always interesting what what some priests or deacons will say at the end the very end of the mass yeah i think those are all official responses mm-hmm. um, <coughs> certain people prefer certain dismissals yeah but yes, there we go. That's uh, the mass in uh, not so small nutshell, but um, pretty much pretty much good to go yeah, there. And then we have we the all, we all conclude with "Thanks be to God," which some take as "Thanks be to God." That's over. I can go home and watch the <laughs> game. Um, that's not uh, how you should take it, but that's how some people do. <laughs> oh, that's un- how unfortunate. <laughs> but. Uh, so it's interesting how how the the mass works. We and every mass you go to, will have always the same form and structure. Now, of course, some people will take it upon themselves to do all sorts of liturgical abuse here and there. But this is how it is ninety nine percent of the time when you go to a church or go to a Catholic mass. Yeah, you'll see people online where they'd have you think that every other ordinary form of the mass is some sort of insane clown show. I've I've never actually encountered literally, any, yeah. I, I've never actually myself encountered a significant liturgical abuse, and I've been to so many parishes in my travels and living different places. So, yeah, it can happen. Rules imply the possibility of rule breakers, but most places do it all right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, remember the liturgy may be the work of the people, led by their pastor, usually a priest. But fundamentally, what makes it the Mass is our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary and Him making Himself present in the gifts we offer so that we may partake of them. So even if the, if the priest is a terrible homilist, you're not here for the sermon. Even if you don't like the priest, you're not there even for the priest. Even if you either. hate the priest's guts, I mean, you, shouldn't, you probably shouldn't hate him, but even if you do... He's not why you're there. Yes. Absolutely. And believe you me, I've been some places with some terrible preachers. <laughs> so as uh, as we come to a close, um, is there anything that you guys like to share before we sign off for this week? I, mean, I would just reiterate that the, the the liturgy is not just a collection of fancy actions we do out of rote, just you know outward actions that have no interior meaning. Every part of it is intentional. It conveys deep meaning. A lot of it is scriptural, and so much of it is rooted in the gospel understanding of who we are and who God is. The Mass is not a bunch of people getting together to prattle on about how holy they are and how worthy they are. It's a community of sinners who humbly come before God, pleading for his mercy, and who receive it because God, who is almighty and beyond time and space, makes the one thing that can save us, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I shouldn't call a thing, person, the one person who can save us, present that we might receive him in the most intimate way possible. I will take that over a glorified Bible study with a sing-song session, as nice as that might be, any day. 
Marcus, what about you? I think what I'm going to do, I'm just going to end end with, uh, I'm going to quote the Vatican II uh, document called Sacrosanctum Concilium. And it, it, it to me, it just, it's a very beautiful, this is, this is why we celebrate liturgy. Okay, so we, we say, rightly then, the liturgy is considered as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. In the liturgy, the sanctification of the man is signified by signs perceptible to the senses and is affected in a way which corresponds with each of these signs. In the liturgy, the whole public worship is performed by the mystical body of Christ, that is, by the head and his members. From this, it follows that every liturgical celebration, because it is an action of Christ the priest and of his body, which is the church, is a sacred action surpassing all others. No other action of the church can equal its efficacy by the same title and to the same degree. In the earthly liturgy, we take a we take part in a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy, which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem, toward which we journey as pilgrims, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, the minister of the holies and the true tabernacle, where we sing a hymn to the Lord's glory, with all the warriors of the heavenly army, venerating the memory of the saints, we hope for some part in fellowship with them, for we we, we eagerly await the Savior our Lord Jesus Christ, until, until he, our life, shall appear, and we too will appear with him in glory. Amen. Well, for me, I, I just want to echo back to, or echo back what I said earlier, where when you go to the Mass, or when you see a Mass, or when you attend a Mass, if you ever get a chance to, allow the deeds, the actions, the words to change who you are. Because ultimately, the Bible tells us to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our, of, of our minds through Jesus Christ. And very specifically, this is part of how that happens. Um, we go before the Lord's table to uh, become one with him um, in his mystical body. Um, and in that the Mass is, is, is there to, to offer that to all of us. And I hope that, that for those of you who may be on the outside of that looking in, I hope that you can see what, what we all see, the beauty of our Lord offering himself to us um, for salvation and for healing of the soul. Um, as always, if you have any questions, feel free to send them to info at catholicparadox.com, and uh, we will see you next time. Thanks so much.